Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joe and Jamie Walker met when they were in high school. They were sophomores. They actually met in their driver's ed class. They soon discovered how much they enjoyed each other. They began to date, and they fell in love. They soon were talking about when they were married, one day they wanted to have a large family. They wanted to have lots of barking dogs. They wanted to be able to have a crazy, chaotic Christmas, something they had not had as children growing up. They wanted to have lots of kids and dogs, and they just looked forward to chaos. Well, they went on through college, and when they graduated from college, they both they got married. And then Joe went to law school. And as he was going to law school, then it was Jamie who began being a high school teacher. And they waited until Joe had finally finished his law degree before they started the family. So they finally had their first child, a little boy. Twenty months later, they had a second little boy. And after having two children, they decided, you know, maybe that's enough chaos. Two children under 20 months, maybe that's okay, kind of where we are. And they decided, I think this is probably a good number. And then there was a surprise, a big surprise. Twins. Two girls. They now had four children under four years old. It was crazy. They wanted chaos. They got chaos. There was so much to have to deal with that in the end, Jamie quit her job. I mean, her salary wouldn't cover the cost of four kids in preschool, in childcare. And so she now is a stay-at-home mom. They started trying to figure out how do you make this? How does it work? And they began to find their way in the world. They were active in the school. They were active in church. They had many good friends. Some of the friends they made during this time was a man named Jason and his wife Erica. It turns out that they had helped to start an orphanage 
in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone, you know, is on the west coast of Africa. It happens to be the seventh poorest country in the world. And so they had started this orphanage there. And Joe had really gotten involved. He was very fascinated by what they were doing, their work. He was passionate about children, helping them wherever he could in the world. He had been working with an organization in Brazil. Now he wanted to help work with this group in Africa. He helped raise money. When it came to the 10th anniversary of this orphanage, Joe was invited to go along with Jason and to go see it for himself. And so he flew to Sierra Leone, took the bus, all the travel they had to do to get there, and they arrived late on a Saturday night. Sunday morning he got up to go up to the orphanage and there he realized they were in chapel. They were singing, they were dancing. There was a young man who stood up and he was giving the devotional. Couldn't have been 11, 12, 13 years old. His name was James. But Joe said he was so articulate. He was so confident, self-assured. He was amazing. And he listened to these kids and he was so touched. In the end, he met James's younger brother, um, Abraham, and he began playing with them. The next week he would be there, he played with all of the kids, playing soccer, playing handball, reading books with them. He just joined in with their life and what was going on there at the orphanage. When he got ready to leave, he had become so attached to James and to, Ali, to um, Abraham that what he did was he, he got a cell phone for James so that he could FaceTime him when he got home to the United States. He really wanted to be a mentor to him. That was one of the things he had gotten into, mentoring young people coming along. So when he flew back home to the United States, he then started calling each week to talk to James but when he started doing that, his kids then started wanting to say, we want to talk to him. And so all the kids started FaceTiming James and Abraham as well, and they started sharing with them. They all started getting along so well and having such a good time. Six months later, Joe decided he needed to go back to the orphanage, and he did, again to see what was going on, to be with them and when he came home this time, he wound up saying to Jamie, I think God is asking something more from us. What would you think about us adopting the boys? And Jamie was very clear and she said, you've got to be crazy. <laughs> Our world is chaos right now. And you want to add two more kids into this whole thing? Absolutely not. Well, all I'm asking, he said, is that you start praying. What do you think is God's will? Oh. <laughs> How do you say no to that? So she starts praying, and she would find herself in November on a plane to Sierra Leone to go see the orphanage for herself. She wanted to prove to herself, this is not a good idea. There is absolutely no way we want two more children in our family but after the week was over, her world had been turned upside down and she came home. 
And she called the kids together and said, we need to be praying about this. We need to be asking, what is God's will? And they talked in small groups. They talked as a whole family. They talked and they prayed and prayed, talked. And finally one night they sat down as a family and they took a vote. And it was unanimous. Let's bring them to be a part of our family, to adopt them. It would take a little while to work it out all the way through Sierra Leone and through the United States government. But finally it was in November of 2021, Joe flew to Sierra Leone and came home with two sons, James and, and Abraham. When they came back home, they made sure to document all of their first. I mean, you think about it. If you've grown up in a country, seventh poorest in the world, what do you have? These boys had lived in conditions that had been deplorable. Quite often they were hungry. Quite often they were homeless on the streets. They were abused until finally they could make it to the orphanage. No, life had been so hard. And so, of course, one of the first was an airplane ride. That was the thing they were the most frightened of was actually flying to the United States. First airplane ride. It was their first time on an escalator. You think about what that would be like. And then in the Atlanta airport, it was their first meal at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> no, there were so many firsts. On the way home, they went through a car wash. That was amazing. And then it was the first Thanksgiving. And then it was the first Christmas. And these two boys were just so grateful. Grateful that they had been rescued from such a difficult situation. <coughs> So grateful for the way that they were loved and now a part of a family. And then it came to the first birthday party. They never had a birthday party. People didn't do that in Sierra Leone. In fact, they didn't even keep records. They had to finally kind of guess, when do you think they were born? And each of them got to choose a day, and that became their birthday. <laughs> and so it was Abraham first. His birthday came along, and... They explain we're going to have a birthday party. That means we're setting aside a day in which we're going to recognize that this is the day you were born and we want to honor that day. And we're going to celebrate it. Family and friends are going to come together and we're going to give gifts to you and we're going to sing and then we're going to give you a birthday cake. I mean, they really weren't sure what to make of the whole thing and and it was such an exciting day when family and friends were there and they brought out this cake and they had him close his eyes until the cake came out and open your eyes and everybody began to sing. And he just started to sob. I mean, sob. And he ran over to Joe and hugged his dad and then hugged his mom and hugged his brothers and sisters. He would later be asked about his birthday cake. And it was this young boy who said, it's the prettiest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it's not a birthday cake. It's a blessing cake. A day for me to remember how I was rescued from such a difficult situation. A day for me to remember how much I am loved and give thanks. I am so blessed. 
It's not a birthday cake. It's a blessing cake. As I heard this story, it made me think about where we are right now, and that's getting ready for Passover. You know, Passover is one of the high and holy Jewish days or time during the year. Passover is going to start in about three and a half weeks on April the 5th during Holy Week for us this year. And it made me think of it because that's exactly what the Passover is about, about people remembering to give thanks for how God took them out of bondage, took them out of slavery, and brought them into freedom to give them a new future into the wilderness, into the promised land. You remember at the Passover how God's love wins. Overcoming the Pharaoh and all of his power to free the people and for the people now to remember how much God loved them and how God still loved them. That's exactly what Jesus was doing on the night of the Last Supper before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's important to understand that our scripture lesson this morning is about Jesus being in the Garden. Well, understand what he did right before he went there. He was in the upper room celebrating the Passover, remembering the story of how God's love had won against the Pharaoh and all the powers against them, how God had acted in history, and to be assured of God's love for his people. And it's after he had remembered that story and they had celebrated the Passover that they get up from the table, they go across the Kindred Valley to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is not that far from Jerusalem, and you can go up on the top of the Mount of Olives and look out across the city. It is a beautiful sight. And the Mount of Olives obviously was covered in olive trees. The word Gethsemane means oil press. So the Garden of Gethsemane was the garden of the oil press where the olives that had been collected there on the Mount of Olives were brought down and turned into olive oil. It is a beautiful place to this day. Whenever we take our trips on the Holy Land, we always go to the Garden of Gethsemane because there is such power that you can't help but feel this holy moment there in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are so many old olive trees. They have been dated to be 900 to 1,000 years old. They are phenomenal. And they have found that a number of the trees all come from the same basic plant, which means if it was a tree that now is dead, but it could have been 900 to 1,000 years old, that these trees came from, now you're all the way back to the time of Christ. It is this beautiful place that we all remember where Jesus goes and prays, let this cup pass from before me, but not what I will, but whatever is your will. They have built the church of nations there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The church of nations was built by lots of countries around the world, all sending money to say we are all a part of such a holy place and they built this beautiful church and they built it around the rock that they say this is where Jesus knelt to pray his famous prayer. Now is that where Jesus knelt? 
maybe, possibly. But if you go there, I assure you, you will feel the power, the place of presence to know you come to the Garden of Gethsemane to kneel and to pray and to say, not my will, but your will. For months now, we as a family of faith have been praying. Many of us have been praying for years about what should the future of our church be. Should we stay United Methodist or should we find a different expression of Methodism? It's important to understand the vote next week is not about leaving being Methodist. We will always be St. Luke's Methodist Church. It's simply a question of do we stay a part of the United Methodist structure or is it a new expression of Methodism? I know you have been praying as I have been praying. I've been praying ever since General Conference in 2019 when I saw how we acted as delegates in 2019 and the language that was put into the discipline. And I have to tell you, I've been praying almost every day and every day, though I think I know where we should go and what we should do, I end my prayer with those words, but not my will, but thy will be done. When you and I are individually praying about our lives and issues that we face, we tend to know what we think God should do or what should happen in our lives. And that's what we tend to pray for. And that's not bad, but do you find that you tend to add at the end of your personal prayers, but not my will, but thy will be done? You know, so often we kind of find a little hesitation there because I think we almost sense that if you start asking for God's will rather than what we think we know we want, that it could be hard or difficult. After all, Jesus prayed that prayer and suddenly he's now being tried and he's being beaten and tortured and put on a cross. And so we tend to associate, if you pray that prayer for God's will, how hard is it going to get? But just stop and remember, when you look at the total picture, though Jesus would go through a very difficult time, it would also lead to Easter Sunday morning and the resurrection. And so whenever you pray for God's will in your life and not just what I want but God's will for my life, just know that many times the very thing you're praying for may be exactly how God wants it to go too. And if not, then what we trust is as life goes a different direction that maybe God is still getting us to where we want to go. Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it seems miraculous and joyful. Sometimes it's with sorrow. But understand that God's will is always that love wins in your life. If you and I talk about being people of faith and we're saying we trust God's constant love of us, His children, that's what it means to have faith. If you trust in God's constant love 
of us His children, then it means we can pray, but not my will, but thy will be done. You're praying, you trust that God does love you and wants to lead you in good ways. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something that should bring you a sense of peace and comfort. So as you and I can face any kind of times in our life that are dark times or times of uncertainty, times we need to make decisions, how do we go forward in praying as Jesus prayed? That's what I want us to think about this morning. I just want to share three things quickly with you. First of all, I think it means you confront the issues, you pray, and then you take the first step. That's what happened in the Passover. They had to confront the Pharaoh and the power of Egypt. They'd been praying about it. And so then they were able to take that step and flee. And they got all the way to the Red Sea. And I love this scene. They get to the Red Sea and now they can't go forward. They're trapped. The Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind, gets in his horses and chariots and comes after them. And now they are trapped between the Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And Moses is looking into heaven going, what do you want us to do? And the Bible says, God said, tell the people to go forward. Take that step. I believe it wasn't until they finally took that step into the Red Sea that it begins to part and they find their way through. Tell the people to take that step. It is Jesus who is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He is praying, knowing the forces that He is up against from the Romans to the Jewish hierarchy. And He is there praying. And when He's through praying, He stands up and says to His disciples, Rise, let us go forth. He takes that step to confront the issues. Next Sunday when you and I come to vote, we have been praying. We've been talking about the issues. It is our chance to take a step forward, to take a step into a new beginning, an exciting new place where God is going to lead us. We don't have to be afraid. But secondly, when Jesus comes to pray, He isn't praying that He's going to change God's mind. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray so he feels God's presence. He moves into the presence of God because that's what gives him strength and a vision of what to do. Prayer is not about trying to change God's mind. Prayer is about trying to move into the presence of God. That's where you find strength and vision when the nights are dark and we're not sure what to do. This several years ago, I came home one day and Marsha had been reading a sailing magazine. You know, she and I love to sail. And she immediately handed me it said, here's an article, you need to read it. If she's handing me an article that I need to read, I know it must be important to her. And so I looked at the title of the article and it was entitled, Woman Overboard. I understood why this article was important to her. And so I sat down to read it right then. Wow. There's about four people who are going to be moving this 54-foot sailboat from the British Virgin Islands down to Bonaire near South America. Obviously offshore sailing, 
sailing through the night, multiple nights. There was a man named Christian and a man named um, Zeke and a man named Jake and a woman named Wendy. It turned out that Wendy's husband was at home finishing their sailboat because they intended to start cruising full time, just the two of them around the world. And so she was wanting to get more offshore experience. How do you sail through the night? She was wanting to polish her skills. She was already a good sailor, but she wanted to learn more. So the four of them headed out. They'd been sailing a couple days offshore when one night as it started to grow dark, weather rolled in. The clouds suddenly covered all of the stars and the moon. It got very dark. The wind picked up 30 knots. And suddenly the, we the waves went to 6 feet, 8 feet, 10 feet. And now it's howling. They're moving along. They had dinner in the cockpit. The men picked up the, the dishes and the leftover food and were taking it down below. Wendy was going to have first watch at the helm. And she was standing there at the helm when suddenly the boat caught a rogue wave and pitched unexpectedly. She lost her balance and she fell out of the cockpit, hit the side of the deck and was underneath the lifeline into the water that fast. She didn't have on a harness to hold her in. She didn't have on a personal flotation device. No, she'd been standing there at the helm and it wasn't that bad and suddenly out of the cockpit, hit the deck, under the lifeline, into the water and all the men were screaming, woman overboard, woman overboard. The captain was dropping the sails as fast as he could. He was starting the engine, trying to turn the boat around. Another man ran to the bow with a strong flashlight. But you don't understand what that can be like when you're out there in the middle of the ocean and waves 10 feet high and you're now looking for something the size of a, of a soccer ball just floating on the water. The chances of finding her were all but nil. They turned the boat around and they're trying to go back and the man on the bow begins to think he's hearing somebody, some noise. And they decided to take a chance and they turn towards the noise and suddenly with the flashlight they see her. Well, that was great, but you still got to navigate and get there, and then you have to get her out of the water, which when you have this huge bucking boat in these waves is no small feat. They got near, and they threw her this lifeline, this little preserver that's attached to the boat. She caught it. But again, quite often in these rescues, this is where people drown. They're drugged through the water. Well, they start trying to pull her in, and she is struggling to pull in, and she is strong. She is tough. She gets to the boat and managed to pull herself out of the water back onto the boat. And when she climbs into the cockpit, they said, there was no clapping and cheering. They said, everybody started to sob. They all sat there in the cockpit crying. They'd come this close to losing her. They knew it. Well, I got through reading and I said, wow, that's amazing. Marsh goes, look who wrote it. And I looked at the byline and sure, it was written by Christian Shore. He was a friend of ours. He was an offshore captain, a delivery captain. We had sailed offshore with him multiple times overnight making these kinds of passages. I immediately picked up the phone and called and said, Christian, I want to know the backstory here. What in the world? 
He said, Bob, it was wild. He said, it just didn't seem that bad. We didn't have on our PFDs. We didn't, weren't clicked in. And I mean, when she fell out of that cockpit and hit the water, I knew she was dead. The chances of us finding her were none. To pull back around and to suddenly see her, you know, the reason we were able to get her out, she's actually a police officer and she works on the SWAT team. She is tough. She is in shape. She was strong. That's the reason we were able to get her out of the water and back onto the boat. He said, oh my goodness, we got her back on the boat. After we all calmed down, she began to tell us what happened in the water. She said when she hit the water and came up and she saw the boat sailing away, she just panicked. She started flailing around. She knew she was going to die. But her training kicked in and she began to push down the panic to tread water. And she said it was so eerie, so dark and so alone. She started to think about her husband and how much she loved him, how much he loved her. And she said as she was there treading water, watching the boat go away, suddenly she said, I don't know how else to say it. I felt the presence. A presence came. And I felt calm. And I felt strength. And so I kept treading water. And then I saw you coming back. And it gave me the strength to start to holler as you got closer. And you saved me. And Christian said, Bob, I've known Wendy for years. And you got to know, this happened months ago now. It takes a while to write the story, to get it edited, get it in the magazine. It just takes a while. This happened months ago. And I've stayed in close contact with Wendy. And I just got to tell you, it's been amazing. This lady was hard. She'd seen the worst that people do to people. She was cynical. She expected the worst out of people. She expected the worst out of life. That's what she saw. But after this has happened, she is completely changed. Wendy is this warm person. She is so kind. She expects the best from people. She sees the best in life. I'm telling you, because of the night and the darkness, she is completely changed. Because in that darkness, the presence came. For Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the darkest of night, He would know the presence of God, which gave Him strength and resolve and focus to be able to rise from His prayers and say, Arise and let us go forth. You go into prayer not trying to change God's mind or to get something from God that God doesn't want to give you. You go into prayer and pray it that way so that you are in the presence of God and you remember that He loves you constantly and you have nothing to fear. 
And so third, I believe when you and I pray, not my will, but thy will be done, you open yourself to be changed so you experience how God's love wins. The person who gets changed in prayer isn't God. You don't convince Him to do something that He doesn't want to do for you. You pray so that you can be changed. When you remember that you can trust God's love for you, then you are opening yourself to be able to follow and not be afraid, not to force it to be one way. You open yourself to let God lead your life. You come to know the presence, and that presence brings you calmness and peace, which gives you the strength to be able to take that step forward. You know, I've told you before about Fred Epstein, a guy who's a pediatrician, neurosurgeon pediatrician. He once had a patient, Mikey Schwartz, two and a half years old, had a brain tumor in the cerebellum. He was able to operate, remove the tumor, but because of his age, they couldn't give radiation. They had to give chemotherapy, and it would be a long chemotherapy regiment. But he did well, and Mikey was such a neat kid, happy, fun, and he was coming for over two years for chemotherapy on a regular basis to the hospital. All the nurses and people got to know him. Fred got to know him. Everybody loved Mikey. But he also got to know Mikey's parents, and his parents... Sam and, and Nikki, they were, they were wonderful people. And so getting to know them, he and his wife, Fred and his wife, started running with Sam and Nikki to go out and do fun things. Well, Fred, every year during Christmas, right before Christmas, would go down to Florida for two weeks in order just to decompress, come home to the snow and enjoy Christmas. He and his wife had just gotten to Florida. He was out on the tennis court when he got a phone call the very first day and it was the office saying Mikey came in for his regular checkup and the MRI shows the tumor has come back. Fred hopped on a plane that afternoon and was home by midnight that night up to the hospital and into Mikey's room and there were Sam and Nikki's parents standing there. Their eyes were bloodshot. It was obvious they had been crying. And Sam said he was so angry with God. All day long he had been yelling at God, how could you do this? How could you let this happen to this boy? After all he has been through, how could you do this? And Fred said he thought it was a little interesting since neither Sam nor Nikki were actually all that religious. I mean, they were Jewish, but they didn't go to synagogue. They didn't practice their faith. But he said, I've also noticed through the years when your child gets sick, it's amazing how it opens up communication with God. And that's what was happening here. And it was Fred who said, look, don't, don't give up yet. We, we have lots of things we can do. The next morning, Fred was at the hospital and he was looking at the MRI. They were going to be going into surgery. And while he was getting ready, along came Rabbi Michael Springer. Michael Springer is a lady. And he said, she is a ball of fire. She is somebody who knows God. She loves God. She, and when you're around her, you feel God. And Rabbi Michael, he said, she just kind of lets you know everything you need to do, and we usually do it. And she came by the office, and she said, I'm going down to go pray right now with Sam and Mike and Nikki, and if you would like to join us. 
He said, I knew that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> and I knew she meant right now. So I immediately followed her down to ICU into his room. The little bed was there. They had already taken Mikey back to prep for surgery. But we stood there and gathered around the bed and the rabbi said, let's hold hands and have a prayer. He said, she always says that. And he said, I like it. Because when you're holding hands and pray, you know you're not alone. And so we held hands and she began to pray first in Hebrew, then in English. She gave God thanks for Mikey and prayed for his surgery and his health. Prayed for Fred, he said. She prayed that my hands would be used by God as his instruments. Prayed for the nurses. That you could feel the presence. It would be later he was talking with Sam. And Sam said, you know, when we stood there and held hands and prayed, tears started running down my cheek. But now they turned from anger to gratitude. Something was happening. I was so grateful for my wife. I was so grateful for a surgeon who was a friend. I was so grateful for all these nurses that I knew were going to be taking care of Mikey. As we stood there praying, I found this change happening in my soul. I felt the presence of God come. I wasn't angry anymore. I was grateful. And I knew that we could deal with whatever came our way. In the end, the surgery was successful. Mikey's now in his 20s. But it was a real time of growing in faith for Sam and his wife, who ever since that time have become so very active at the hospital, going to strangers, to parents, who are going through what they went through so that no one ever has to be alone. You don't have to be alone on the dark nights. And when you're facing an uncertain future, it's why we go into prayer. So that we know the presence of God. We open our hearts so that we can be changed. We remember how much God loves us how God's love wins. And we don't have to be afraid. And when you know the strength and the peace, then you can take that first step forward, even in the darkest of nights. It's when you and I pray, not my will, but thy will be done, that we're able to know again that God's will is that love wins in your life every time. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.
Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.